Thank you, Bill. Morning, friends. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 will be in verses 28 through 34 this morning. Let's take the time to read our passage uh, today. Mark 12, 28 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. Let's uh, ask for his help as we study these verses now. Father, we uh, are grateful for your truth. We're grateful for the scriptures that you have breathed out through your holy apostles and prophets. And thank you that we can hold it open in front of us today and see in black and white uh, your very words. Uh, Jesus, give us attentive minds to your words. We pray for the uh, power of your Holy Spirit, his strengthening power to help us to see not just these words in print on our lap, but uh, be able to see the truth and hear the truth they contain. And by your good spirit, Lord, press this truth in our hearts so that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Only you can do this work, Father. We cannot grow ourselves. I pray for the sound of your word to quicken and awaken us, especially those here today who are still, uh, still spiritually dead, whom you haven't yet brought to life in Christ Jesus. Work among us, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is John Wesley, very young John Wesley, um, one of the key figures of um, history in the history of the church. Of course, he is the founder of Methodism and uh, the Methodist church, not the Methodist church that you know today. But uh, Methodism, we have more in common with John Wesley than the Methodist Church does, I assure you. Uh, but uh, an important figure in church history. 
together with his brother Charles and evangelist George Whitfield, Wesley was one of the key figures of a, of a great spiritual awakening that took place in England. Pastor Kent Hughes uh, describes his colorful early years. Listen to his description. Wesley was born in 1703, the 15th child of Samuel Wesley, the pastor of Epworth, and his wife, Susanna. Wesley enjoyed a good upbringing under his unusually talented and dedicated mother and went on to be a went on to a brilliant career at Charterhouse and Oxford University where he was elected fellow of Lincoln College in 1724. There he served as a double professor of Greek and logic. After serving at his father's church on two occasions, he was ordained a minister in the Church of England in 1728. Returning to Oxford, he joined a group of undergraduates led by his brother Charles and the soon-to-be evangelist George Whitfield, a group dedicated to, to living holy lives. It was mockingly named, nicknamed the Holy Club by other students at Oxford. And though Wesley was not yet truly converted, he met with these men for prayer, the study of the Greek New Testament, and devotional exercises. He set aside an hour each day for private prayer and reflection. He took communion each week and set himself to conquer every sin in his life. He fasted twice a week, visited the prisons, and assisted the poor and the sick. Doing all these things helped Wesley imagine that he was a Christian. In 1735, still unconverted, he accepted an invitation from the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel to become a missionary to the American Indians here in Georgia. If you go to Fort Frederica down near the coast, you can see the place where Wesley ministered. It was an unqualified disaster. He utterly failed as a missionary, undergoing miserable conflicts with his colleagues, almost dying from illness. And then the episode of uh, apparently toying with the affections of a young woman, Wesley had to flee from her father. When he returned to England, he wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? His experience taught him that the wickedness and waywardness uh, taught him the wickedness and waywardness of his own heart. The man we just read about in our passage this morning bears a great resemblance uh, to John Wesley, for he too was dedicated to rigorous religious activity. Like Wesley, our scribe had a thorough knowledge of God's word and and the verdict on him, on, on his spiritual condition, was also the same as Wesley's. Wesley acknowledged, who shall convert me? And Jesus' verdict on this man was similar. He was close to the kingdom of God, still outside. So the danger of missing God's kingdom is great. Especially for those like Wesley and the scribe that will see today. I'm talking about people who've, 
who've grown up in a Christian environment. I'm talking about people who are very involved in their church, who are here every time the doors are open. I'm talking about people who who do have a, a broad knowledge of the Bible, and even those who can quote it. For that kind of person, the danger of missing God's kingdom is great. How do we prevent that from happening? How do we avoid the verdict that young Wesley gave himself? How do we avoid the verdict that Jesus gave, uh, made on the scribe? How do we avoid this danger of missing God's kingdom, of coming oh so close? Well, I think we avoid this danger by understanding four characteristics of the scribe in our passage this morning. Uh, everyone can avoid this danger, the danger of missing God's kingdom by, by looking at these four characteristics of this man in verses 28 through 34. His first characteristic that we see in the scribe it is his admiration for the Son of God. This scribe is not like other scribes. Unlike the groups who have previously confronted Jesus, this scribe actually approves of the way Jesus answers uh, their questions. And I want to point out two things here about his admiration. And first of all, I want to remind you of the setting where this takes place, this encounter. Notice verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Uh, Mark indicates that this is yet another in a series of confrontations or conversations between Jesus and his opponents uh, taking place in the city of Jerusalem. It's either Tuesday or Wednesday of Holy Week. These conversations started uh, back in chapter 11. There in Chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus was confronted by chief priests, scribes, and elders uh, sent from the Sanhedrin. It says, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Uh, they're asking, where did you get the right to close down commerce at the temple? Remember the day before he had uh, driven away the money changers, driven away the people selling animals. He had brought uh, uh, the commercial enterprise of the temple to a dead stop. Scholars think this happened in a place called the Royal Portico. This is the temple complex. Here's the actual temple itself right in the center. And they think this conversation took place right here. It's Really difficult to get a, a, a feel for how huge this was. The royal stoa or the royal portico, it was as long as three football fields. It had a roof supported by four rows of massive columns. Each column required three men to fully encircle uh, the column. Uh, and each row consisted of 40 columns. This was an enormous structure uh, it's described as probably the most magnificent building ever erected by Herod. Herod the Great, that is. 
So following this first confrontation, and then it seems even in rapid succession, uh, other groups are sent by the Sanhedrin to challenge Jesus. If you look over in chapter 12 at verse 13, the next one, it says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. There they ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. That's followed by a group of Sadducees that we studied last week. This is in chapter 12, verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And then now finally this last uh, confrontation. It's not so much of a confrontation now, but really just a conversation uh, by one of the scribes. Scribes were also sometimes referred to as lawyers, experts in Jewish law. They'd been opposed to Jesus' ministry way up in Galilee where it began, and uh, also down here in Jerusalem. So they continue that opposition. But this scribe is different. And we see that next in the approval of this man. Uh, look at verse 28 again. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well. So he's overheard at least one of these conversations, maybe more. And he's noted that Jesus has answered the Sadducees in a, in a very commendable way, in a very appropriate way, using Scripture uh, to disprove their, their very point that they're trying to make. Uh, to this scribe, Jesus' answers have all been satisfying and, and correct. So whatever his attitude was before this, hearing Jesus a reply to his opponents has given him an admiration. This scribe actually approves of Jesus. I want to suggest that there are many in our culture like this. Of course they appreciate Jesus. He died on the cross to redeem sinners. They're all for Jesus. In the same way that they're all for Elvis. And they're all for college football. And they're all for the 4th of July and a Ford F-150. You know, they've been to church. They, they may, might even go on a regular basis. They've heard about Jesus healing the sick and performing miracles and forgiving sinful people. And as, as a result, well, they have a great admiration for Jesus, who he is and, and what he's done. But admiration for Jesus is not saving faith. Jesus tells us that if admiration for him is all you have, it will keep you just shy of the kingdom of God. There's a second characteristic we see in this man. His knowledge of the word of God. Second to none. Knows the Old Testament far better than most other people. Probably knew it better than many of us do. Look again, uh, verse 28. In the middle of the verse, it says, In seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment 
is the most important of all. Uh, this reveals uh, a breadth of his knowledge of scriptures at that time, which consisted of the Old Testament. Scribes were concerned with the proper interpretation and exposition of the law. And so they studied the law exhaustively, and they had determined that in the first five books of the law, the books of Moses, that there were 613 commandments from God. 365 were prohibitions that forbade something. 248 were positive commands that charged people to do something. And among those 613, some were described as heavy, meaning they were weighty uh, commandments that made great demands on a person's will or possessions. Other commandments were called light, meaning that they were less demanding. Jesus even referred to this in Matthew 5. He spoke of breaking one of the least of these commandments. And so it wasn't uncommon for people to ask a rabbi to comment on which of these 613 were heavy in their opinion. Or sometimes to summarize the law in a nutshell for them. That's what he's asking here. He, he knows these commandments. And he's asking Jesus as a visiting rabbi for his opinion, uh, teacher, in your opinion, which commandment to you is the heaviest, the, the most important? And this reflects that he has a thorough knowledge of Scripture. I bet if you and I met somebody like this, someone well acquainted with God's Word, we'd probably conclude that he or she was was a strong Christian, had given his life to Christ. I mean, they could even quote Scripture to us. We mistakenly believe that someone with such a wide knowledge of God's Word and someone who can call Bible verses to mind must be a fellow believer he or she must have trusted Christ. But I want to assure you, friend, that this is not the case. Jonathan Edwards noted uh, in his book, The Religious Affections, that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan himself demonstrated a thorough knowledge of God's word and, and quoted verses to Jesus uh, Knowing scripture and quoting it is no true sign of a person's salvation. I think we'd agree, I hope we'd agree that Satan was nowhere near the kingdom of God. And in this case, the scribe, his knowledge of God's word did not make him a member of God's kingdom either. Even with all this knowledge of the word, Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. You're still outside, but you're close. The prince of Grenada uh, was an heir to the Spanish crown. He was sentenced to life in solitary confinement in one of Madrid's most ancient prisons. And uh, this fearful and dirty and dreary place earned it the name the place of the skull. 
It was widely known that once you went in to this prison, you would not come out alive. And this prince was given one book to read the entire time he was in prison, and that was the Bible. With only one book to read, he read it over hundreds and hundreds of time. It became his constant companion. And after 33 years of imprisonment, uh, he passed away. And when they came to examine his cell, they found notes he had scratched into the soft stone walls with a nail. And the notations were... Uh, uh, things like this, Psalm 118.8 is the middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 7.21 contains all the letters of the alphabet except the letter J. The ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Esther is the longest verse in the Bible. No word or name of more than six syllables can be found in the Bible. Uh, uh, an author uh, writing a magazine article commented on the oddity of an individual who spent 33 years of his life studying what some have described as the greatest book of all time, yet only walking away from it with trivia. This prince never made a, any kind of spiritual commitment, but he was an expert at Bible trivia. This is true of the scribe. His knowledge of the word is, is exhaustive. It's thorough. Knew the uh, Old Testament scriptures far better than, than most other people. There's a third characteristic I want you to see in this man as well. And that's his agreement with the standards of God. He, he not only had an admiration for the Son of God, uh, a knowledge of the Word of God, he even agreed with the standards of God. And there are two standards I want to point out to you that, that Jesus mentions here. The first standard mentioned is called the Shema. Uh, notice verse 29 with me. Jesus answered, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5 here. It's called the Shema because Shema is the first Hebrew word of that passage in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel. These verses were essential to the Jewish faith. And every devout Jewish person would recite them in the morning and in the evening. Uh, they were their early confession of faith. And, and the Shema affirmed two things. And first it affirmed that there was only one God. It says in verse 29, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's an affirmation of what's called monotheism and not polytheism. The worship of one true God versus the worship of many gods like the nations surrounding Israel. Uh, we believe in one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
with each person of the Trinity equal in substance and being. But he is still one God, not three gods. We, we say that he is one God who exists in three persons. And the Shema affirms uh, the oneness, the unity of our one true God. And then the second thing the Shema uh, affirmed was that God required complete devotion from his followers. Notice verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. These are familiar words uh, to most of us uh, here today. And they simply affirm that the God of the Bible has a rightful claim to every component of human personality. God lays claim to all of you. There is no part of you that he doesn't declare ownership of. He lays claim to the heart. The heart is used in the Bible not the way we think of it as the, as the place where our emotions come from. In the Bible, the heart is the place where everything comes from. It is the control center. It is the cockpit. It's where all our schemes are hatched and where our plans are developed, including our decision for or against God. He lays claim to this cockpit. He lays claim to the soul. Some describe this as the source of strength and energy and, and power, the, the source of motivating energy that brings strength to our will. God lays claim to the mind, our sense of perception that guides our opinions and judgment. Jesus has added this. This isn't listed in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. And God lays claim to our strength, of course, our physical capacity, but this also refers to the things that we possess, everything in our, our grasp. And so through these four things, Jesus is stating that, that the Father has a rightful claim to every facet of your being, every component of human personality. If you've ever been told that becoming a Christian is simply a matter of repeating a short prayer, I urge you to take note of what Jesus says here. First of all, repeating a prayer after someone is, is not mentioned anywhere in Scripture. Becoming a Christian involves a change of mind and heart. It involves surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. And verse, clear, uh, verse 30 makes it clear that God lays claim to every part of you, every facet, every component that, that makes you who you are. He said it like this in Luke 9. And he said to all, not just his disciples, not just the spiritual people, he said it to everybody standing around, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Let him lay down these things. Let him surrender these four parts of personality to me. Let him 
deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Becoming a Christian is not a matter of repeating a prayer, reciting a prayer. It involves trusting in the atoning death of, the, uh, of Christ on the cross and surrendering to him as Lord. Is that something that you've done? Can you say, I've given my life to Christ? In Matthew's account, Jesus refers to this as the great and first commandment. This is the most important commandment in the law, to surrender all that we are to the one true God. From the New Testament, we would add trusting in Jesus' atoning death on the cross. Well, he goes on to name a second standard. The second most important standard is uh, love your neighbor. Oft quoted uh, throughout the New Testament. Verse 31 says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here Jesus is quoting uh, this passage in Leviticus that I mentioned. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God's word tells us that this is a summary of the law. Uh, in Galatians 5, Paul said this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Romans 13, Paul said, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That's Romans 13, 8 through 10. This is why Jesus says what he says next at the end of verse 31. Uh, he says, there is no other commandment greater than these. The, the first, love the Lord your God, summarizes the first table of the law, the first six commandments. And Paul tells us that the second commandment, love your neighbor, summarizes the second table of the law. So this second standard that Jesus repeats to the scribe is, is love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and this, to, to these two standards, he quickly agrees. Look at verse 32 now. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And we would declare someone fit for heaven who makes that kind of confession, would we not? It's an astonishing, astonishing thing for him to say. Part of his job was to regulate sacrifices that were made at the temple, but he's, he says that keeping these two commandments that Jesus has named is far, far more important than all the sacrifices made at the temple. 
They're, they're over and above all burnt offerings. So this scribe is, is in complete agreement with Jesus on these two standards that he's, he's named. But even so, he's just shy of the kingdom of God. And I want to put it to you that there are many today in the same position. They affirm God's standards. They agree with what Jesus says. They like the moral code of the Bible. They, they even try to keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, they're those who have found the church to be a safe and enjoy, enjoyable environment. You probably have met many of these here in the South. But like the scribe, they can, they can affirm all that and still be outside the kingdom of God. One more characteristic in this man I want you to notice. And this is Jesus' verdict on his condition. Jesus gives the verdict on this man. Notice verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, there was some grasp of spiritual truth. He did understand some things. There was a degree of understanding. He understood that God wanted far more than ritual, empty ritual, far more than going through the motions. But even this understanding was not enough. Look at what Jesus says further. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God which would have been encouraging. Oh, just a short way. You're so close. But it's also a warning. But you're not in. I want you to see and recognize all that this scribe has. Oh, appreciation for the Son of God. A knowledge of the word of God. Uh, even agreeing with the standard of God. But even with all that, he is still on the outside of Christ's kingdom. He is not a believer. He is not part of God's family. And friend, the same thing is true for anyone sitting in this room. It's possible for anyone of us to be in the same condition. Yeah, I don't believe that, Pastor Rob. Anybody with all that going on has to be a Christian. Then listen to this from the words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we teach Sunday school? For 20 years we taught Sunday school. And didn't we cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? 
Do you know how many mission trips we've been on? I have been to Guatemala. I've been to India. India of all places. And you're telling me, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. J.C. Ryle said it well. Let us observe in these verses, in our passage, how far a man may go in religion and yet not be a true disciple of Christ. This danger of missing God's kingdom is great, especially for those who share the characteristics of this scribe. They admire Jesus. They know his word. They agree with his standards. But they get the same verdict. You are not far from the kingdom of God. How do we prevent this from happening? Well, in our introduction, we left John Wesley, an unconverted man, uh, confessing, I went to America to convert the Indians but oh, who shall convert me? On his voyage back to England, he met missionaries uh, on the ship he was sailing in. Uh, they uh, counseled Wesley and spoke to him of personal faith in Christ that was God's gift uh, to those who asked and sought it. And so Wesley learned from these missionaries and he resolved himself to seek the personal faith they spoke of. The account goes back in England. Wesley recorded this in his journal on May 24th, 1738. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society, which is a Bible study, uh, essentially, in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley went on to lead many others to that same personal faith in Jesus Christ. And friend, I, I, by way of application, you can avoid missing the kingdom the same way through personal faith in Jesus Christ, by believing that he had to die not just for sins, but for your sin. And by relying, by relying on his death on the cross as the payment for your sin. That, my friend, is the key to uh, avoid missing the kingdom is to trust in the atoning death of Christ and to come to him, surrendering to him as, as your Lord and Savior.
If you're confused about what that means, any of the elders would be happy to talk to you following the service. I'd be happy to speak with you. And as far as application goes, some of you might be thinking, I could never live up to the standards that Jesus has named in our passage. I have never loved him like he describes a single day in my life. I have never loved my neighbor like he describes. And if you're thinking this, you're quite right, because I haven't either. And I would dare say that none of us have loved him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us can live perfectly up to these standards. But when Jesus walked the face of the earth, he did. And his perfect performance is applied to us when we trust in him as our Savior and Lord. We look to him and his keeping of the law when he walked the earth. Because you and I will never do it. When we trust him, his performance is credited to you and me. That is some mighty good news. Lastly, those of you in conversation with friends, friends, be discerning about who you're talking to. Some of the people you speak with might look just like this scribe, might look just like a young John Wesley. Probe them and ask them about personal faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. They might be almost there. But Jesus would say to them, you're not far, but you're still outside. Be discerning and don't rubber stamp automatically those who sound like they're Christians. Use your discernment. Father, I pray that you would be at work in us. I pray, Lord, for those of us here like the scribe, if any one of us is here like the scribe, that you, Christ Jesus, would bring us all the way home to the kingdom. We who are just shy, may we cross the line of personal faith and trust in the work of your Son who died in our place. And Father, may we rejoice in how your Son kept the law perfectly and look to His righteousness and not our own when we fail. Jesus, let us be discerning of the people around us and not automatically accept their profession, but gently and graciously ask them about personal faith in your Son. Work this in us, please, Christ Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.